Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medella, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medella, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to This is Critical, where we examine all of our assumptions about culture, like that the best Beatle is John Paul Georgia Ringo. And of course, it's Yoko Ono. Yoko, if you're listening, you're the best Beatle. Today, I'm talking to another divisive woman with surprising connections to the music business. Her name is Louise Mensch. Does that name mean anything to you? All right. If so, you definitely have strong feelings about her. And if not, you probably soon will. Louise Mensch is considered by many to be, like, too hot to handle. She's definitely a philosopher queen. She's also a novelist, journalist, prolific tweeter. And I think she's a master of the paranoid style in American politics. That's the tone described by Richard Hofstadter in 1964 in Harper's Magazine. Hofstadter described the paranoid style as characterized by, these are his words, heated exaggeration, suspiciousness, and conspiratorial fantasy. And he said it most often ends badly in addled minds and tons of lies. But he also made it clear that even if you're using a paranoid style, you might be able to advance a good, a worthy political program. And I think it's possible that Louise Mensch, by proposing early on that there was something rotten in Denmark when it came to Trump and Russia, and by demanding an investigation that ultimately came in the form of the Mueller investigation, well, I think Louise Mensch might have been advocating for a sound program, but she certainly uses the paranoid style. Okay, so for years on Twitter, Louise Mensch has made the maximalist Trump-Russia argument that the shadowy Kremlin and its ubiquitous hand servants is not just bypassing democracy to install and blackmail our politicians. It's filling our heads with disinformation, which she calls deza, using the Russian word, scuttling NATO alliances, tying up Americans in contrived culture wars that have essentially made us blithering idiots, and on and on and on. We mostly think of conspiracy theories as belonging to people on the radical right, you know, the ones who believe in the deep state and lizard people and Q. But you can imagine why Louise Mensch, a Biden voter, gets called a conspiracy theorist because she does use this kind of rhetoric. And while she's gotten at least one very big thing right, and we'll talk about that, she's also tweeted stuff that's not exactly right. Like that Trump, Mike Pence, and Paul Ryan were all going to be arrested for racketeering charges against the Republican Party. And the myths grew, like... Sources, apparently, unnamed sources told her that Steve Bannon was going to be executed via the electric chair. Okay, so it's not quite bleach-drinking, 5G, panicking, anti-vax poison to the brain. But it's dead wrong, and it's dangerous stuff to circulate, even if your unnamed sources are all about it. Our culture, though, regularly gives these kinds of feeds huge followings. Oh, especially in audio. I'm not saying Louise Mensch is Alex Jones or Joe Rogan, 
and she doesn't even have a podcast, but she is prolific on Twitter, and her Substack newsletter is called Dear Mr. Putin. You're going to hear me make a couple of references to Twitter and my DMs. I asked my followers, many of whom have strong feelings about Mensch, to send me questions. I have to admit, I found her form of showmanship and her swashbuckling confidence and willingness to play the villain fascinating. I mean, I love to like people whom other people love to hate. And I'm not sure what that says about me, but when I got my own culture show, I really wanted to talk to Louise Mensch. First of all, she almost never gives interviews. Gosh, this is the first interview that I've done since um, I went on Bill Maher, actually, just after the election. And I resolved at that time. I mean, Fox asked me on, lots of people, but I resolved not to do it because I don't believe that the reporter should be the story. I'm in a fortunate position now in my life where I don't need anything really financially, so I don't have to, and I don't want to. Second, she's a Trump hater who draws such ire from lefty media outlets like Vox and The Cut. There's certainly an enormous amount of dedicated trolls But I've actually been amazed to watch my following on Twitter, not just in general, but also with the people that I'm talking to, um, increase in the way that it has. I also think there are a lot of gonzo male figures who say whatever they want. I mean, hi, Glenn Greenwald, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Steve Bannon, and all those ivermectin Ivans with their poisonous gibberish and YouTube channels. Mensch doesn't get everything right, but she's not preaching ivy bleach or starting insurrections. And FFS, she gets stuff right and is an outspoken foe of Trump. Last, she runs her feed on her own dime. No one will hire her, so for those who think she's worse than the ivermectin Ivans, rest assured, they're getting huge paychecks and big commercial platforms where she's well off the platform ledge. So I hope you can see why I really want to know what makes Louise Mensch tick. Let's start with a brief bio in her own words. Well, I've had a very unusual career indeed. Um, I started out after college working in the record business. I went on tour with rock bands. Then I got a book deal. I was a best-selling British novelist. 2009, 2010, I ran for parliament. I was elected as a conservative member of parliament. I sat on the culture, media and sports select committee during the phone hacking investigation of the Murdochs. I was a columnist for a short while. I pitched to a news corporation, a new news site called Heat Street, which they took me up on. I ran that for them for three years. And then I finally resigned slash was fired over an unwillingness to support Donald Trump and have been doing independent national security journalism ever since. That's a lot to take in. So let's go back and start with the books. I got my first book deal on my 22nd birthday. I remember that very clearly because I was, I was sulking. You know, you're still a bit of a teenager in your early 20s. I was sulking because it was my birthday. My parents had sent me what they thought was hilarious, which was a novelty chef's hat because I can't cook. <laughs> and that was my whole birthday present. So I was really sulking. And then the agent that I'd sent my um, rather desperate uh, package to called me up and told me that he had a two-book deal for $100,000, which as I was making the equivalent of about $18,000, you know, seemed like all the money in the world. 
And uh, the same day, actually, when I got that phone call, I was in the offices of Sony Records having a, an interview to go on the road with rock bands as a job. And I got the job as well. So for a while there, I did, I did both. And then I had to quit um, Sony because I couldn't manage to keep up the writing and also be taking two flights a day and having four hours worth of sleep a day after going to heavy metal gigs. So it was, it was <laughs> amazing fun. And in the end, a great birthday. Yo, such a good birthday. I was like, oh my God, this started out as the world's worst birthday. This is now my best birthday ever. <laughs> so what was, which one was that novel, the, the very first one that you sold? Um, and, and what was it about? It was called Career Girls. And it was, instead of, um, instead of doing therapy, yeah. I kind of poured out my heart ache of the guy that was to become my second husband and it turned it into a, into a fantasy novel where I just exercised all my, all my fantasies that I'd had as a student of going into the record business and so forth, which I loved um, very dearly. It was a story about revenge. And the, as it says to career girls, there were these two girls and they're rivals. And then at the end of the book, they get together and they defeat a mutual enemy. But they start out as inter-Nissan rivals over a guy they fall out over college. And the guy isn't important, but kind of destroying the other woman does become very important. And one of them was based on Tina Brown. Um, it was about a magazine executive. And the other one was, you know, my fantasy of myself in the record business. Uh, and I had so much fun writing that book. I love that. I enjoyed it immensely. Very, very cool. I, I worked for Tina Brown first at The New Yorker and then at Talk. I would have wanted to be a rival with her as a young woman, too. That sounds, that sounds great. Um, she's formidable. And she, she, is, would have, yeah. she, she would have been a worthy opponent, even for you. Which is the favorite of your novels? Which is your favorite? Uh, I, I'm fond of Career Girls because it did change my life. But there's a book I wrote towards the end of my novel writing career called Passion, which is funnily enough, about a spy. And I absolutely loved writing that book. I, they called it James Bond for Girls. And I think it got nominated for um, Romantic Novel of the Year by the Romantic Novelist Association in Britain. And because of that book, I used it to get myself onto the Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee. I'd just been elected as a member of parliament for the Conservatives. And you have to lobby within your own caucus, as it were, in Britain to get onto these committees. So I sent this round robin to everybody that went, look, I'm nominated for Romantic Novel of the Year. How about having somebody on this committee that actually works in culture? <laughs> and it worked. So um, spies, of all the rumors about you, I'm going to start with this one. There's a rumor <laughs> that you are very connected at MI5 or 6 um, and through your parents. Is that possible? <laughs> through they my parents. Well, listen... <laughs> If my dad is a deep cover operative for MI6, then more power to him because he's bloody good at hiding stuff. <laughs> well, there are, there are, right, uncleared families. Uh, I guess so, but I think it would be very surprising as, unfortunately, I know what my father's been doing for most of his career. And it was a private client stockbroker in the city, whereas my mother was... Um, I think she will be absolutely thrilled to learn there's a rumor that she was part of MI6. She was a primary school teacher, an elementary school headmistress, and then she was in local government, like a state senator, the equivalent of that. So how did you get elected to parliament? And also as a conservative, which, you know, I remember your first Twitter bio, or the first one I saw, which was feminist, 
conservative. No bots, please. We're English. One of my favorite <laughs> ever bios. Um, and, and tell me about being a conservative feminist who is also a, 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 not just a, a fan of heavy metal, but as big a commitment as you can be without being sort of a lead singer. Yeah, that's true. Very true. Um, I don't look, look, I just find rebelliousness attracts people like me. And at the same time, the conservative philosophy attracts people like me. And conservatism in Britain is different from conservatism in the United States. It isn't nearly so ideological or religious. Um, it's just a way of thinking about the economy, national security, and so forth. So it doesn't have the same cultural connotations as it does here. But mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm a child of the 80s. And when I was growing up, my three heroes were Arnold Schwarzenegger, Madonna, and Margaret Thatcher. Uh, (laughs) I'm not sure if it was necessarily in that order, but it probably was. I mean, I had the world's biggest crush on Arnold Schwarzenegger. I still do today. Um, He knows it. Uh, But but, um, so I just loved all things that were going to shake the ground. And I I think I'm a gigantic tomboy. I liked physically fighting um, boys. You know, I, I organized all the girls in my primary school into an army to fight the boys when I was 11. We used to be outside making camps out of, out of sticks and bits of hay and so forth. And then, you know, having our rivals would make their own different camps. Um, and I loved, I loved all that stuff. So I suppose rock and roll is a natural extension of being a bit of a tomboy and, and a rebel. But I've yeah. always been a conservative. I've been interested in politics since I can ever remember. Um, my mom tells me that I once asked her if men were allowed to be prime minister. Yeah. Because <laughs> oh, very nice. Because you came into consciousness. Yeah, with, with Maggie. I came to, yeah, we had a queen as the head of state, and then we had Margaret Thatcher as prime minister. So I grew up in what felt like a woman-dominated world. Yeah, um, and that's a really interesting paradigm. I'm so thrilled to be alive to see Kamala Harris become vice president. That was yeah. massive to me. Absolutely massive. So you made a splash in your stint in Parliament, your parla stint. You took office, let me get this right, you took office in mid-2010 and then made headlines for confronting the Murdochs during that phone hacking scandal at News of the World. And I'm looking at this, and 10 years ago, fully 10 years ago, you called for regulation of social media after protests um, started rioting in London in 2011, and you've agitated against cyberbullying. I think you even used examples from your own inbox. But then you resigned two years into your tenure. Tell me about that. That's right. And I think enough distance and time has passed now that I can say that I I resigned my seat because a family court judge made it a condition in a custody battle that I resign my seat. Hmm. You know, that we were going to move to the United States because I was uh, marrying my second husband and my first husband, who was American, two of my kids, three kids were born in America. My new husband was going to be American. Everybody was American. And I was wanted to finish my term and move to New York. But he took me to court. And although I prevailed in court, the family court judge made it a condition that of my victory that I would quit my job hmm. because he said I was stressed. He said, the mm. mother is stressed. If she really cares about her kids, she'll quit her job. I mean, looking back on it, the sexism of that judgment, who isn't stressed? 
Mm-hmm. You know, show me a factory worker who isn't stressed. Show me a nurse who isn't stressed. Mm-hmm. Being in a high stress occupation is not a reason to say that you can't be a good parent to your kids. You know, what about mm-hmm. you, Your Honor? I'm sure mm. you found it as a barrister, you probably found it pretty stressful. But I had to resign. It's very complicated to resign from Parliament. It has medieval something. There's Yorkshire involved. You have to that's be a right. bailiff. That's right. Absolutely right. You cannot resign from Parliament. You cannot just quit. Uh, you have to be appointed to an office of profit under the crown, which means that when you get this fake job, uh, it's either the steward of the Chiltern Hundreds or the, or the manor of, oh gosh, this is terrible because I was the steward of this manor and now I don't remember what name it is. I think I wrote it down because there was no way I was going to remember. Northstead, the crown Northstead. steward and bailiff of the master of manor, sorry, of Northstead, um, which is a medieval estate. That's right, which is underwater <laughs> in a lake. There you go, that's British politics for you. I had to become the master and the bailiff of a medieval manor that's literally under a lake. After the break, Louise Mensch starts breaking news. When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist, you'll want to invite everyone over. From book club to reality TV watch parties, even the in-laws. It smells... Amazing. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is infused with two times more essential oil versus regular Airwick Essential Mist for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is perfectly portable and effortlessly easy, the way fragrance should be. Now that's a breath of fresh Airwick. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today we're talking to former Member of Parliament, Louise Mensch. So you did resign in 2012. Yeah, you came to the U.S. as an indie journalist. And you hooked up with your former enemy, Rupert Murdoch, to launch the Heat Street blog. And as far as I can tell, that's where you really started owning the story of Trump Russia. That's right. I mean, I actually think that the um, reason I have the following that I do have and the friends that I do have is that the mainstream media completely failed. They failed totally. The New York Times is out there. I think the Pulitzer Prize Committee failed totally, giving the New York Times a Pulitzer for its coverage of Trump Russia. Are you kidding the people that said investigating Donald Trump, FBI sees no clear links to Russia when it was exactly the opposite. I mean, what? What are you talking about for listeners who don't know about this? Okay, for those that for those that don't remember, um, during the closing days of the election, there were um, a couple of stories. Frederick Foyer, a very good journalist at Slate, mm-hmm. published an entirely true article. Uh, saying that researchers were looking at a Trump organization server, which had unexplained links to Alpha Bank. Alpha Bank is a Russian commercial bank. There is absolutely no reason whatsoever why a server belonging to the Trump organization should be talking to this thing. And a few days later, the New York Times published a story which the editor, Dean Baquet, retitled Investigating Donald Trump 
FBI sees no clear links to Russia. Obviously, that headline was meant to imply that the FBI had looked at whether or not the Trump campaign was talking to the Russians, colluding with the Russians, and had decided against it. Like, this is a nothing burger, there's nothing here. The story that was actually filed, the journalist that wrote it said, mm-hmm. took the complete opposite view. They were mm-hmm. trying to say there's an ongoing investigation, there's an investigation into the Trump campaign, and it came out as, for all the people that have been looking at the various Trump links to Russia, Mike Flynn's links to Russia, having dinner with Vladimir Putin, all of these things. And all of a sudden, the New York Times, the gray lady, the paper of record, Mm -hmm. was telling us that it wasn't true, it was all nothing, it was a load of rubbish. Mm -hmm. And that hit the Hillary campaign very badly. It was one of a number of blows um, for her campaign towards the very end. At the time, I was running a news site for Dow Jones called Heat Street, and I had been told that there was actually a FISA warrant from the FBI Mm -hmm. on the server communications between the Trump server and this bank, and that the FBI was investigating the Trump campaign. Mm -hmm. And my first reaction when being told this, I said, you know, what's a FISA warrant? Not only did I not think this was a big story, I'd never even heard of FISA, which is when the FBI goes to the FISC, the Foreign Intelligence Services Court, and they obtain a warrant to look at... um, people that they think, Americans that they think may be acting as an agent of a foreign power to get a surveillance warrant Mm -hmm. on them, which is difficult. Mm -hmm. There's a dedicated court for it, hence Fisk and Pfizer. But you were the first, I think, to put that word on the map. um, I was. That phrase, that uh, acronym. And to say that the Trump campaign was, in fact, being investigated by the FBI, which now seems like nothing, but at the time it was sensational. I very nearly didn't publish that story at all because I was told it only about a week before the election. And I was thinking, yeah, it's too late. Nothing's going to happen. This election is set. There's nothing that's going to happen. In the end, I was like, oh, well. And I think I put it out late at night on the day before the election, just because. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until Jim Comey confirmed that it was happening indeed in March that people went back and said, wow, And then I remember the weirdest thing was having my story. I was working out at home, actually, and somebody, my phone started buzzing crazy. And they said, you've got to turn TV in. And I said, okay, why? And Sean Spicer was at the White House press podium reading out my story, trying to, like, literally, and he read out not just a quote, it's like he read out three paragraphs from it, trying to justify Trump's nutball statement that Obama, President Obama, had tapped his phones. I mean, what? So this is where the Trump administration was trying to say your news about the FISA warrant meant that Obama had spied on the Trump campaign. I'm pretty sure that's when Trump spelled tap with two Ps. That's right. That's right. I I called it spinal wiretap. I mean, I hadn't (laughs) reported that. I had reported a FISA warrant. That's not the same as saying the president says, as Trump's tried to do so very often himself, go out there and bring me the head of my enemies, my political enemies. I mean, President Obama couldn't order any wiretapping. He doesn't have the authority. So you've got to tell us a little bit about where the sources come from, because you never name them in stories, and they've been both right and wrong. I don't know that they have been wrong, but we'll get into that. Um, I can't think of a time where they got anything wrong specifically. But in the case of the FISA warrant, the initial impetus, because he said it on Twitter, uh, the initial impetus came from a guy called Naveed Jamali, who wrote a book about being a, uh-huh. a 
double asset, a dangle for the for the FBI, for Russia. At the time, he mm-hmm. was actually in the United States Naval Intelligence Reserve. He was an officer of military intelligence, which was easily publicly verifiable. And he was talking to me for various reasons. And he mentioned he kept pushing this FISA warrant thing. And he said that he had taken it to the New York Times and that they were wary of running with it. So, you know, as I say, I listened to that for a while and I didn't think, I didn't even think it was a big story. It didn't sound very interesting. I mean, you know, banks and servers and so what. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I went and stood it up with somebody else um, linked to the intelligence community. Uh, And this person is um, extremely reputable. So at that stage, I knew it was right and we published it. Uh, But that is the only time that you're ever going to hear from me who one of my sources was because he put it out on Twitter, thereby absolving me of my my own duty to him as a journalist to keep it quiet. So maybe you can tell me who they're not. I mean, I th- you talk more than almost anyone else about foreign intelligence, about non-American intelligence. I've got sources in British intelligence. I've got sources in Canadian intelligence. I've got mm-hmm. sources in U.S. intelligence. Um, that is as far as I'm going to go. I'm just not going to get even slightly more specific. It may well be that there are ways that I could be more specific and not throw sources under the bus, but... I still have those sources because I'm extremely careful and I'm going to remain extremely careful. And that's that. You had a piece in the New York Times. This was, I think, um, March of 2017, so pretty early into the presidency, called What to Ask About Russian Hacking. That was proposing questions and witnesses that Adam Schiff should ask and call ahead of the House Intel Committee's Russian hacking investigation. And you had your dream witness list, including a bunch of people I at least didn't know of at the time. We hadn't really heard of Corey Lewandowski, and we had no idea that this might have a connection to Mark Zuckerberg. Sebastian Gorka was like out there, and you proposed that Schiff talk to all of these people. And as far as we know, he did talk to a lot of them, as did the Mueller team, that's right. I mean, the thing is, yeah, this was, but at the time as well, you remember when that op-ed came out, everybody was very upset. I remember at the time, there were people saying, Louise Mensch is so crazy. She thinks she thinks they should be talking to Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, lol. <laughs> <laughs> but in your bio at the time, this is not the no bots, please Twitter bio that I love. We're <laughs> no bots, please. We're English. You were a digital media executive. And, you know, I don't want to miss the fact that you said Dow Jones, which is right for Heat Street, but also at News Corp. Um, and News Corp is obviously a Rupert Murdoch um, organization. And there was plenty of thought that somehow you were triangulating that this was Murdoch's way of getting at Trump, or worse, that you were some kind of double agent for the American right, um, that you had yeah, been that. on Fox News, and that you, you know, where was her money coming from? Romance novels don't make enough. And, the, you know, well, they this make plenty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that was the hypothesis. And that, uh, and that you were at a, you were a blogger, for Rupert Murdoch. You were a mouthpiece for Rupert Murdoch. We now know that Murdoch did not like Trump. And uh, I think in Michael Wolff's book, he says something when they he made the call or they made the call that Trump lost in Arizona at, at this last election that he said, 
according to Michael, well, fuck Trump. He finally got to, uh, you know, make it clear that he had some distance. Well, that does sound like something in general that Mr. Murdoch might say. Um, I don't think he he necessarily said that. And the idea that he is somehow, I mean, this is absolutely nuts. Doesn't anybody read the Wall Street Journal? Mm. Look, they've got every right to take as a company, they have a point of view. Um, if I went to Daily Costs and said, hi, Daily Costs, I'd like you to hire me, but I want to write a whole bunch of stories about why the Republicans are great and mm-hmm. the Democrats suck, and in support of the Texas abortion ban, like Daily Costs would laugh at me because mm-hmm. they have a point of view. Um, Murdoch's companies obviously have a point of view, and it's conservative, it's very conservative. I could have stayed at a job that I absolutely loved if I had been willing to row in behind Donald Trump, and I was not willing mm. to row in behind him, period, the end. I saw him as a traitor. I saw him as a traitor in 2016. Uh, in 2016, I was advocating mm-hmm. that he be arrested. Um, I was called in front of my superiors many times for saying things on Twitter that were profoundly mm-hmm. anti-Trump. So the idea that somehow, despite the fact that across Fox News and the New York Post and everything Rupert Murdoch is supporting Trump and attacking the Democrats, that he secretly wants to use me to have a go at Trump is just insane. I mean, let's be honest, that's just it's crazy. Um, no, I wasn't working for, for Rupert Murdoch. I was um, yeah. given a choice and I, I, I declined to take the mm. King's shilling, which uh, cost me a lot. You know, it cost me a lot financially, but much more than that. It was just a job and a team of people that I loved working with. I loved going to work at Dow Jones every day. Um, I am a conservative. I've always been a conservative until Donald Trump came along. I was all in for the Republican Party. I didn't even pay attention to the Hillary's emails thing because I was so anxious about the way that the Republican Mm. primary was going. I started out supporting Marco Rubio, and then I supported every single Republican candidate that was left in turn as they dropped. I went through the whole list until it was Ted Cruz was the last guy standing. And when he got eliminated and Trump, or it might have been Kasich, I can't remember Mm. who was the last guy out. And then it was just Trump. And I went, okay, Republicans for Hillary, I guess. But not with a lot of enthusiasm, because I am not a Democrat. If it's a traitor or a Democrat, I guess Mm -hmm. I'm going to go for the Democrat. Because I was supporting Hillary didn't mean I supported her agenda. It just meant I saw Donald Trump as a racist, a sexist, and a traitor. And I didn't get into politics to put bad people Mm -hmm. in positions of power. Bad policy versus a bad person. I'll go with the bad policy every time. Coming up after the break, the perks of being a gadfly. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense. 
so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today we're talking to Louise Mensch, author of romance novels, former member of parliament in the UK, and now an independent journalist and flamethrower who writes mainly on Twitter and a Substack newsletter called Dear Mr. Putin. Her reporting most often covers allegations of collusion between Donald Trump and Russia, and to many, her claims of fact seem more like conspiracies. For instance, there was this tweet from July of 2017 in the beginning of the Mueller investigation when Trump's inner circle was not cooperating. What she says is, my sources say the death penalty for espionage is being considered for at Stephen K. Bannon. I am pro-life and take no pleasure in reporting this. Now, obviously, Twitter is not the New York Times, and I don't know about you, but I detect a hint of satire in that last sentence, especially the phrase, take no pleasure in reporting this. So I asked Mensch how seriously she meant that tweet to be read as real reportage. Not only was I told that, but I don't believe my sources were wrong either. The standard penalty for espionage is death. Everything that is not death is a deviation. I mean, most people's espionage um, convictions do deviate from death, but um, it was being considered for Bannon, who was not cooperating and was not talking. I'm not in the prediction business. Mm-hmm. I don't say things like, um, this is going to happen, unless I'm certain of it, this is going to happen. I only say things that have happened or are happening in this case, that this was being considered. It was being considered. So I stand by that. That was true. Um, I don't care if people believe it or not. It was hard for the media to get its head around the fact that we were dealing with enormous, world-shaking un- things that don't normally happen in news. One of the things that surprised me at the beginning of Trump's presidency is that a lot of people in the media started blocking other people, which really wasn't done at the time. You would block people and then let it get around that they were in with the Russians or Russian assets. Um, And you did this to people I know who are are not those things. So the idea of like, you're a Russian agent. I mean, I don't go around accusing people of being Russian agents. I don't, I will block people if they repeat Russian propaganda. But repeating Russian propaganda doesn't make you a Russian agent. But if you're going to repeat some nonsense about, you know, Donald Trump won the election and Hunter Biden's laptop, that's Russian propaganda. And if I say, you know, don't spill that Russian stuff at my face. I would dispute that I'm calling you a Russian agent. I have a slightly higher opinion of Russian intelligence services than to believe that they are in fact recruiting, you know, thousands of random Americans as agents. Um, I think you have to draw a fairly clear distinction between Russian disinformation, which is everywhere, and actual Russian agents, of which there are very few. The block list, I think, is what you're referring to. Mm. Um, In the middle of uh, 2018, I'm I'm not sure now, there was a a feature that sadly, very sadly, Twitter has now denied access to the API. It was coded by an independent guy, a very left-wing guy, actually, um, called Block Together. And it enabled you to block, if you're blocking a troll, you can also block all the people that follow the said troll. Mm. 
And there were people that would troll me and my friends. They would troll people just for being friends with me round the clock. And I am talking things like posting pictures of their um, mother's houses on Twitter. One of my friend's mother, his, like his elderly sick mother, found her house posted on a troll account called The Jester. And he encouraged people to go troll them. All right, I've got a question for my Twitter DMs. This is what it says. She is full of shit on every possible level other than her love of lucre. I think this goes with the charge that you're a grifter, just like that popular word that sort of surfaced in the last few years as a way to dismiss someone. Even Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner have been called grifters. So grifters, I guess, are in it for the money and nothing else. You say you don't need the money, right? So... What's going on with money? Well, of course, I mean, the thing is, where are the stacks of ill-gotten gains that I am getting because I report truthfully on intelligence matters? They're just quite literally nowhere. I know it annoys um, some of these people, but I'm afraid if you pump disinformation, I am going to call you out on it. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, I would feel bad if Russian intelligence thought that I was throwing that term around casually because they are the enemy. And I don't want to appear foolish or stupid to them. Um, I'm sure that they vet their assets with relative care. So there really aren't that many of them around. Now, is there propaganda all over the internet? Well, hell yes. They stir discontent, they pump out misinformation. It doesn't make you a spy if you believe it, but you still might be putting out, um, you know, these people that are dying of COVID-19 Obviously, some of them genuinely believe the nonsense that they are spouting because they didn't take the vaccine and then they die of it. Mm -hmm. But it's still Russian disinformation, even if they didn't know that. So these people you're claiming are amplifying Russian misinformation are obviously angry at you. But it goes far beyond that. Places like Vox and The Cut have done stories that label you as part of the fake news that people on the left keep falling for because you're telling us what we want to know. I realize you're a rebel, but this is a huge amount of anger toward you, usually reserved for people like Bannon. And yet Bannon got invited to the New Yorker conference, even if he was disinvited, and he's still a source for many, many reporters. And, and yet no one in the mainstream media has, has really spoken to you. As we discussed earlier, I don't want to do it. And as for people getting annoyed, well, that's great, good, excellent. I'm glad. Setting the cat among the pigeons is something that everybody that goes out and is an investigative journalist and reports the truth should want to do. Uh, The quality of the people and the alliances that I have made through this is enormous. Mm. And the fact that there are some people on Twitter who are chuntering, and believe me, some of these people will, I'm sure, when I go back and look, be personally known to me as long-standing trolls. It doesn't bother me in the slightest. I cannot express, words cannot express how little, like the electron microscope has not been invented that could measure the level of my caring about what those people think. Why would I care? When Adam Kinzinger retweets me and says, you know, this is a sniper shot, Louise Mensch pointed out to me, I've been amplifying this account, it's actually a Russian troll. I mean, that's worth more to me than a million of these other people. I would not care if I lost 200,000 followers tomorrow. I 
genuinely don't care. And I think as soon as you start caring about your follower count or, you know, then what are you? Then you're just like a TikTok creator. <laughs> you're not in national security at all then. You're just, an, you're just an entertainer. I am doing this for one reason and one reason only, because the United States has come under heavy assault by enemy powers that managed through disinformation and through social media to get a traitor into the Oval Office. It's like a bad movie that actually happened in real life. And we are in the big paradox of our time where you're talking about the fact that I, I work on Twitter and that's the only work that I do that you can see. Um, but although in one sense, social media is ephemeral and it's lightweight and it's nothing and it's just tweets, mm -hmm. on the other hand, those tweets have affected our nation in profoundly terrible ways and disinformation has to be fought. You know, Donald Trump didn't... Uh, people. One thing people know, don't know about Trump, and I, I like to point this out, is that they think he was new in 2016. They think he was a new candidate in 2016. He has never gone anywhere until 2016, when Twitter, social media, Facebook became wide enough that this kind of targeting could properly happen, and when Russia acquired the artificial intelligence to be able to make it work. Without that help from Russian bots, the guy has tried and failed. He was seen as new because nobody had ever heard of him because he would always run and then he would drop out, you know, a month later or a few weeks later. He has been trying to do this forever mm. and he has been failing forever. And the difference between success and failure was social media. So a couple weeks ago, I had a wonderful talk on this show with a former professional basketball player named Dre Baldwin. We spoke about trash talk on and off the court. And he was saying that according to personality tests, he's intrinsically disagreeable. He's a disagreeable person. And he's fueled by aggressive talk. So when he talks trash, it makes him work harder. And I think being a gadfly on social media, like you are, is sort of like that. Like, you're a provocateur trash-talking all of us into being more aware of Russian influences, kind of waking us up. What do you think of that? First of all, I'm not a provocateur. Like, I just really got to push back on the gadfly rubbish. I mean, okay. look, I, it's rubbish as far as I'm concerned. The fact that there is a bunch of trolls that don't like me doesn't mean I'm set out to provoke them. Because I don't care what they think one way or the other. I'm just reporting. I don't mind if you don't like it. I don't give a damn. Do you think you'll ever return to writing books like Career Girls or maybe a real memoir, not just fiction inspired by your life? It would be difficult for me to do because as you were asking me earlier about sources and I was saying I can't, I can't give you any answers, my whole life right now is, you know, lots of it is just not reportable. Mm -hmm. So there would be gigantic gaps where I can't really talk about it at mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. So I think not. I mean, we're living through some of the world's most interesting times. We're living through world-shattering events. I just don't want to be doing anything that would embarrass my teenage children mm -hmm. or break faith with people that have been in my life before. I just believe very strongly in keeping yourself to yourself and keeping private so that you, you know, you keep a certain amount of, certain bond of honor as to what has happened before. I've had a fantastic life full of adventure that continues to be full of adventure. And I am in much to the 
the dismay of all the people in your DMs and ranting at you right now on Twitter. I am enjoying myself so much. I am having such a good time. And um, I found something that I just love to do that I think is really worthwhile. Um, And I know what I want to do once my kids have finished school. I know what I want to do before I retire. And then I will hopefully- Which is more of the same or can you break the news here? I would like to go and do some civilian work for our armed forces. That's what I'd like to do because it has purpose and meaning. I don't have something that I want to do to make money. I don't need that. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is literally the one item left on my bucket list at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, And then then that's it. And I will, you know, like they say about death is that what you want to be is like somebody that's, their roller coaster ride is just finished. And you come into the end of the roller coaster, you go, whew, damn, I love, that was great. Let's do it again. (laughs) That's where I want to be. And so far, so good. Okay, so I'm not as rhino-skinned or, like, Hummer-skinned, like those Hummer cars as Louise is. But I am very, very glad to have taken the risk to have had her here. Thank you, Louise, even if there's some blowback. Part of what I aim to do on This is Critical is take the measure of modern culture. And Louise Mensch is a writer, an intriguing one, sometimes gonzo, often funny, and an ace practitioner of the paranoid style. How about that plummy accent also? And we're all adults here. We can handle voices that get framed elsewhere as radioactive, and we can approach those voices with curiosity and a critical mind, right? That's it for this week's show. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review it in Apple Podcasts. It helps other people learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on me and the show and even trash talk me a little bit, follow me on Twitter at page 88 and at this critical pod. If you have a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical. It's made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Harry Huggins is the producer with help from consulting producer Tamika Weatherspoon. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. See you next time and stay critical. Stitcher. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 